What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome to a special interview with Bitcoin Magazine. This is a Bitcoin 2022 conference special. You all, if you were watching this, you very likely have an opportunity to be at the Bitcoin conference, the ultimate gathering of Bitcoiners, April 6th through the 9th in Miami Beach, Florida. This conference is going to be the most epic conference in Bitcoin history and the largest conference in this space's history ever. We're expecting 20 plus thousand Bitcoiners to descend onto Miami Beach, Florida and to show the world how real the Bitcoin revolution is. This special interview is with two long-term Bitcoin builders and OGs in the space, Dr. Adam Beck of Blockstream and Balaji Srinivasan of uh, many, many different projects. He rattles off his very impressive history at the beginning of the interview. And y'all, we talk about Bitcoin's journey from a nascent project on internet forums to a geopolitical force that is going to be a key part of the future moving forward. This was a really fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. I think both, I think you all will enjoy, uh, you know, this, everything that we talked about. We talked on about so many things. So uh, you all, if you like this conversation, you want to see more conversations like this, do not miss out to go to Miami, go to Miami Beach, Florida, on April 6th through the 9th for the Bitcoin conference, Bitcoin 2022. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. And there's going to be chock full of amazing conversations just like this one. So without further ado, let's just get into this fantastic interview with Balaji and Adam. Bitcoiners, welcome back to a special edition interview with some incredibly special guests. I'm sitting down with Balaji Srinivasan and Adam Back, two of the earliest contributors to this Bitcoin experiment and project. And we are here to discuss how Bitcoin has gone from this tiny little project, you know, back in 2009 to Something that is, you know, creating waves across the globe is part of the geopolitical conversation every single day. Um, and in recent months, we've seen it really be on the main stage uh, as, you know, we are seeing some of the most turbulent times in uh, modern history. So, gentlemen, I'm extremely excited to jump into this conversation. I want to start off by giving you both an opportunity to kind of just briefly lay the groundworks with how you're involved in this crazy Bitcoin space and some of your early journey. So, I want to start with you, Balaji. Um, so, you have the mic. Sure. So, uh, you know, so I've been heavily involved since late 2012. Um, you know, I don't usually talk about my, let's call it Bitcoin only resume or what have you. But uh, since, since you asked, you know, I, I taught about 250,000 students about Bitcoin for free in a MOOC that a massively open online course had taught in 2013. Um, a, I got hundreds of thousands of people Bitcoin via a company called earn.com that sold to Coinbase, um, helped billions of dollars of capital get into Bitcoin, probably easily more than hundred million views for tweets and essays and stuff on, on Bitcoin. Um, invested in many Bitcoin companies like Casa and Goloid Money, co-founded Coin Center in 2014 with 
Alex Morcos is a Bitcoin core developer that, that Adam knows and, and also Jerry Brito to defend Bitcoin. Um, and I was a GP at A6 and Z during a period when we, along with USV, were the primary two VC champions of Bitcoin. A CTO of Coinbase, which likewise, I think, has onboarded many millions of people into Bitcoin. Um, and I gave talks at many companies, including places like Square, to help them get into Bitcoin. Um, so Bob Lee, former CTO of Square, just really, Jack certainly may, may remember all that. And um, I also hold a coin or two. Uh, so that's that's like my my Bitcoin resume. I, I do other things, but but I certainly I think I've done a lot on on BTC, and I've been passionate about it for basically about a decade now. Absolutely, and uh, it's amazing, like thinking about all the different ideas that you explored very very early on. Uh, I want to go to you, Adam. Again, uh, you were part of Bitcoin's DNA with Hashcash being kind of uh, the inspiration for proof of work, and you have a very impressive resume yourself. So I want to pass it over to you. Yeah, so I, I guess I was actually involved with uh, electronic cash projects before Bitcoin in the mid-90s a little bit. So certainly a kind of power user enthusiast for Digicash, which uh, was David Chom's company. Uh, now, you know, a name known in the uh, crypto space as well. Um, but he was an author of a 1985 paper, which kicked off some kind of very anonymous, very private bearer cash concepts. And so I was an avid participant on a Cypherpunks list where people were interested to build privacy, te privacy enhancing technology and electronic cash was kind of holy grail thing, which was extremely difficult to build. Or if you did build it, you ended up with basically a stable coin and permission, permission requirements from a bank or something. So that, that was the kind of downfall of DigiCash. It was centralized and they required partnerships with banks. But along the way, I had uh, actually implemented a few of those eCash protocols in a library and uh, worked at a couple of startups that were, you know, had licenses to the technology, tried to develop it, tried to deploy it and try to participate with the cypherpunks as a kind of, you know, consuming hobby to uh, figure out how to deploy this kind of technology. And Hashcash actually was trying to solve a sort of related problem, which is, um, you know, ideally to solve spam, it was about email spam originally. And to solve spam, you might want to, um, you know, charge the sender. And that, that would sort of solve some of the economic problems of spam, but it's, it's, it's more challenging to do. So I realized that there was a way to impose a cost on the sender without that having been respendable. And that was a simpler thing to do in a decentralized way. Uh, so, so I did that and that started a, a discussion really sort of seeded. I think a lot of people independently realized that, uh, you know, almost immediately that, well, this, this kind of digital scarcity proof of work, it's a little bit like digital gold. How do, how do we, you know, cypherpunks generally people interested in this uh, mission, how do, how do they, uh, you know, how do you create a, a bearer respendable electronic cash out of it? And of course that's even more difficult, but there were certainly, you know, many things proposed like, um, the well-known ones like B Money by Weidai and Bitgold by Xabo and uh, Power by Halfini, which are all based on Hashcash, but uh, the first two were not implemented. The second is a kind of proof of concept that Halfini ran for a while, but it's unfortunately centralized. So anyway, that's that was the kind of backdrop. So um, I think I was coincidentally the first person to receive an email from Satoshi, as near as I can tell, in August 2008 thereabouts and uh, mostly about you know citations for hashcash and stuff like that so 
Um, and then it took, took me a while to get sort of more actively interested um, on a technical basis and on an investment basis, primarily because I was, you know, found technology interesting, but was, seemed like a big open question whether it bootstrap. So RG being around in 2012 already would know what I'm talking about firsthand, you know, that yep. for, for a number of years, there's literally no exchange. People were exchanging them for t-shirts and silly things, you know, pizzas and stuff. Eventually it was an exchange the exchange infrastructure is immature. I personally got Mt. Gox at one point. Fortunately, it wasn't you know, too too big of a percentage, but there you go. It's kind of a, another lesson in centralization and custody. And so as I, as I got more actively involved in Bitcoin, I kind of quit my, my day job in 2013, got very far down a rabbit hole, trying to understand all the technology, proposed confidential transactions, which is now implemented in Liquid, and resolved that I really need to make a startup to and I realized that technology naturally on that in that context to do with sidechains and things I've had to met with biology and had a conversation back in that time I think late 2013 or something so yep anyway eventually we you know we got funding to do that and that became blockstream and recruited a number of very clever technical folks with uh, bitcoin internals experience to help make that a reality so here we are incredible so adam i want to stick with you and I want to just jump right into this. You know, how are you seeing Bitcoin today in the world? Well, um, I mean, people have been talking about Bitcoin as an asset class and a sensor-resistant, unseizable asset class, a bearer asset class particularly, for a number of years now. But I think sort of like insurance policies, people don't quite believe that until they experience it firsthand or they see something of geopolitical significance in the news. So I think, you know, you see some quite famous investors of funds and financial institutions, even in the last month or two, suddenly have it click for them and talk about, you know, seeing a shift between gold and Bitcoin or Bitcoin or potential implications for, you know, global commerce in general of, of uh, funds being seized by governments that belong to other governments, things like that. It, it shakes people's confidence in the store of value and custody of uh, invested assets and the ability to transact globally, right? It's a very global world. Today's world is extremely global in terms of supply chain. So it's massively disruptive and concerning for, for everybody. Um, and so, you know, those factors, um, are very interesting to see unfold because suddenly people realize and you know some of them write a blog post or explain themselves or go on videos and so on to say well they were skeptical but now they've seen you know governments freeze citizens assets or other countries assets okay now they believe there's a there's a there's a use case and a reason and maybe you know another reason to invest in bitcoin even if you don't feel that it's likely that you personally in your country have a kind of palpable need you can see that other people have a need. And so that, you know, the growth of that potential is a, it is investment opportunity, basically. And Biology is a, you know, experienced VC and investor and would have, have some things to say about that probably. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, right, exactly. You know, I think it's clear we're seeing Bitcoin adoption in Nigeria and in India around the world. Um, South America really didn't need that much prompting to get it because currency crises were, a common thing there are still a common thing, you know, Alex, Mor uh, not Alex Morcos, but uh, Wences Cazares 
has spoken about this. And so, you know, you've got at least a couple of continents, South America, Africa, uh, people in the global South in general, I think very much understand the problem that Bitcoin solves. And um, so just, just that alone gives, I think, a base of support. Um, in terms of Bitcoin's role in the world, I mean, like on one level, you have to kind of step back and realize that th this thing was sub 1 billion and it was just the dream of people on a message board. And now it has influenced every government in the world. Um, probably, you know, I should say every internet user has at least heard of Bitcoin. They may not hold any yet, but it's a little bit like in the year 2000, you can, you can argue about what year it is comparably, but everybody had heard of the internet by the early 2000s in at least you know, the industrialized world. And so the degree to which it has influenced things over the last 10 years is, it, it's up there. Um, I, I'm, could it have been even more successful in even shorter period? I don't know, but just if you said, look, it's gonna be the national currency of El Salvador, and it's gonna be at like a trillion market cap, and it's gonna have hundreds of millions of holders around the world, that's pretty good for 10 years, pretty good, okay? Um, from, from something that started on a message board, which is actually insane if you think about it. True zero to one, no institutional backing. Um, it's very different than other things that it's compared to. It's not just a technology innovation. Technologies like mobile, for example, came from Google and, and Apple. They're kind of top-down push. Technologies like AI, there's, there's bottoms up, but there's also strong academic top-down push. And certainly Bitcoin drew on academic things, but Satoshi had no academic credentials with bootstrap it. Um, I just had, had to do it bottom up. So that's remarkable. And then I think the other thing I would say is, you know, one of my macro theses, and this is not my kind of only rule, but something I think about a lot is that 1950, you can sort of think of it as, as a mirror moment. And at that time you had one telephone company, AT&T, and you had two superpowers, US and USSR, and you had three television stations, ABC, CBS, NBC. And that was like peak centralization power of centralized states just being ramping over hundreds of years. The Sovereign Individual book talks about this. And since then, over the next 50 years, you had decentralizing technology with the transistor and cable news and uh, personal computers and the internet and smartphones and cryptocurrency. Um, you started decentralizing power very rapidly. And what we're seeing is lots of events that are sort of happening in kind of a mirror image. So for example, the internet frontier opens in 1991, Western frontier closes in 1890, or we have COVID-19 today, we had Spanish flu in the past, right? We have the you know, tech founders today, and we had the captains of industry in the past. We had the, you know, uh, the, the obviously digital gold today and kind of Bitcoin populism. And we had like William Jennings Bryan and anti-gold populism in the past. And we had like, why, you know, Weimar America today with all the money printing and we have Weimar Germany in the past. And so it's not exactly happening in, I can give more and more examples like this, um, you know, but it's not exactly, you know, ABCD, DCBA. It's not like a song where it happens in the exact opposite order, because some of those things are from the early 1900s, some from the late 1800s and so on. But fundamentally, I think it's the grip of centralized states loosening that is leading to these things. And if you track that and you think about where that's going, well, maybe what is coming next is not a great depression, but a great inflation. And you know, if you're if you're doing this mirror kind of moment, we're in the middle of something where there was already significant background inflationary stuff. Obviously, Bitcoin people have talked about this for for years and years, but I think they've kind of been proven right in the sense of Bitcoin being up a thousand x over that period. It's not like it it wasn't happening. 
Um, we are already in an inflationary period, and now we have this massive commodity shock to the world as of you know mid-March 2022. We don't know what's going to happen, um, but probably governments may respond again by printing money, which has been their go-to thing that they've been doing for years and years. And yet, you can print more money, but you can't print more oil or more, you know, like uh, nickel or, or whatever, you know, commodities are, are fundamentally scarce in that way. And they're upstream of everything else. They drive the price of everything else. So, um, so I think that that is quite possible. And, uh, you know, certainly we, we, we saw it happen to Weimar and it could happen. Um, and that is kind of the macro, you know, narrative or story that everybody in Bitcoin has sort of been preparing for. Um, and so we'll see, but unfortunately, it looks like we're on track for this. The thing that people don't get is you're not really hoping for this. It, you know, the guy who's got a parachute is not does not want the plane to crash. You know, um, they say like there's a lot of things that are good about like a stable society. Nevertheless, it is good to have a parachute in the event of that. And on the other side, I argue one wants to rebuild not crypto anarchy like Mad Max, but crypto civilization. So you know, like with with stable and voluntarist interactions between people, less coercion more cooperation. Okay. That's my, I, de I definitely want to get into what the future looks like. So, and, and that's on the agenda for sure. Um, you hit on a lot of things there, Balaji. So I want to give Adam a, an opportunity sure. to kind of react to that. Please. Uh, yeah. I mean, of course, uh, I think many people were not generally aware of how money works, you know, fiat money, government managed money historically, and they didn't have, strong reason to to be because you know payment systems banking and a relatively low inflation rate is a slow enough process that people would not pay attention to it and and while you know if you, people will pull up graphs showing that even the best fiat currencies like maybe the british pound or us dollar fell you know 95 to 99 percent over a 100 year period that's true but you know any investor would not expect to store value by storing banknotes under a mattress, right? You would you would buy a stock index or something like that, and it would preserve value better. Of course, gold is a kind of uncanny ability to preserve value over long periods of time. And people will pull up interesting statistics about the cost of a house or a cost of a you know a suit of clothing or things like that, and show that they're stable across hundreds or even thousands of years, which is kind of fascinating but um and i guess shows what something with with some kind of stability can achieve um so yeah i think that's definitely a, a interesting factor for uh for bitcoin that um it's opened people's eyes now of course we've also talked here about the um quantitative easing phenomena so i think the fiat run world and it's really credit is is in a difficult situation because you know as biology said the uh the only really there's only a few weapons left right so printing more money yield curve control which i think basically given us printing money and buying things to artificially manipulate interest rates um and like, or negative interest rates, which require, which is difficult to impose without with with paper cash in circulation, basically. So that's where the so-called CDBCs, central bank digital currencies, come in. I'm not a fan of CDBCs in the extent that they are also typically pretty Orwellian in 
the concepts that governments attach to them. I mean, as a principle, they wouldn't have to be. They could be bearer electronic cash like stable coins, but issued by a central bank, right? But so far, whenever central banks have talked about these things, they've talked about them being attached to, um, you know, government interference in the free market in terms of what you can spend your money on. And even worse things like social credit scores were pretty much sort of punishing people based on their opinions or something like that. So that's, that's pretty dark. So, um, I, yeah, it's, it's uh, not, not really clear what governments are going to do at this point because they would like to uh, reduce the headline inflation rates, which are, you know, the consumer price index is typically um, not representative reality that you know, everybody can see around them for asset prices or food, you know, all the consumables. Um, so, you know, they increase the interest rate a little bit. That could hurt the economy. I mean, usually, usually you increase, you know, for monetary policy, they increase interest rates when the economy is getting heated. You know, there's full employment, credit expansion is going underway. People are taking increasingly speculative business propositions. And so then they will use that as a rationale to say, well, inflation is increasing due to wage pressure and they'll increase the interest rates to kind of calm the economy down. But we have this weird situation now where the stock market is inflated, not, not because the economy is booming, but because people are trying to preserve value because they know inflation rates are high and so the real interest rate is negative. And so, you know, in that circumstance with the COVID supply chain shock to the global economy and, you know, now the commodity impacts of global sanctions and things like that flowing through, it's really not a great time to, I mean, so the economy is in a bad state, basically. Uh, you know, I guess nobody really knows quite how bad it will be or how long that will, those effects will last. But it's certainly an unfortunate point in history to, you know, increase interest rates enough to push real rates positive. I don't, I don't think that's politically achievable. So, you know, they, they're basically trapped between a rock and a hard place, I think. So, you know, they might increase the interest rates a little bit. Probably the real interest rate will become even more negative despite that they're going to print more money so um and, and these these have effects too because they're actually as asset owners so people who own stocks or property can make money from inflation right they can borrow at low interest rates and buy real assets they can actually profit from it or if they're already property owners they benefit from the you know the, the inflation like the dollar increase in price so whereas the average person uh, are squeezed, right? There's no way the wage uh, increases are going to keep up with this level of real inflation. So it's extremely bad for the average person. I want to jump in here. Uh, I, I talk about the existing system a lot and how Bitcoin in the greater crypto economy is kind of like this new alternative system that is growing and burgeoning besides it. Uh, and obviously, as the existing system kind of cripples itself via bad incentives and other um, kind of just inherent issues with its centralization. Um, you know, that is an opportunity, obviously, for the new system. Balaji's, we are, you know, 13 years into this Bitcoin experiment. In many ways, a lot of folks early on would be extremely impressed with how far we've come. But in other ways, I'm sure there's a lot of kind of disappointments in terms of the capability, folks understanding and grokking of this tech. I guess, can you reflect a little bit in terms of, you know, 
where this tech is coming in terms of being able to be comparable or uh, or uh, or a viable alternative for people to rely on, and how close are we today? Well, I mean, I think um, you know the digital gold narrative. I think is correct. Uh, it, I, I don't think Bitcoin is. I mean, and this may be something you know we, we may disagree on, but um, I think Bitcoin has enough capacity both through formal and informal scaling mechanisms to basically be the back end of the economy. Like you may not use an on-chain transaction that much, but it might be something where you move $100 million worth of funds. And um, Ryan Selkis actually had a post the other day where he compared Bitcoin on-chain volume to Fedwire and it's in the same ballpark. So that plus informal scaling options, you know, whether that is uh, off-chain, like you're depositing it at an exchange or Lightning or something like, you know, Atom and, and Blockstream's Liquid, or you know other kinds of things like atomic swaps and, and things of that nature, um, you know WBTC, what have you, RenBTC. There's now enough different methods that I think we we can scale, and so I think there is effectively a payment story, even if it's not as clean as everything on chain. And there's people who are still working on that, like you know I, I invested in Starkware, and they are Alex Gladstein, and um, just actually recently RT'd something, which is trying to do. Um, using, using Starks to scale on chain on Bitcoin and add privacy and so on. So we'll see if that works. Um, there's also like drive chains, other proposals. So, um, but but I think that on balance, it's gone pretty far. Uh, you know, the, the, one of the most obvious areas is privacy. Um, that's something which I think uh, one could use, and uh, you know that's why I do believe in you know multiple approaches. Um, and of course, there's confidential transactions, things like that associated with Bitcoin. But it's something which requires some, I think, expertise to use. Um, evidently, recently, Wasabi Wallet had some compromise or something associated with it where people could go after privacy. So privacy is, you know, if you know, you're asking me for a glass half empty look at things, right? So that's why I am saying this. I think on balance, it's been a great success. But I think areas like that, privacy um, and scalability, didn't happen in exactly the way we wanted. But I think there are solutions for it. In terms of like Bitcoin's relevance and uh share of mind share uh what's like your reaction to how far we've come is it are you impressed or do you think that you know it could have you know kind of incepted its way into uh the you know what how how we operate on a day-to-day quicker i mean i think that you know the first 10 something years was about building global bitcoin exchanges everywhere all kinds of infrastructure, awareness, et cetera. And I think that fortunately or unfortunately, it becomes the saving mechanism for people in many different countries. And um, they don't transact in it very frequently. They might, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, the thing is the current system does not permit everybody to hold something on chain. If you've got, you know, um, I mean, you can use lightning of course, but that's not as fully custodial as having it on chain. but there are approximations that can, I think, get you there. And I think, um, you know, I guess is your question, could it have come even further? Is, is, is that what you're saying? Or are you, are you saying maybe- and I'm just kind of curious on your impression really. Um, but um, ultimately, you know, it's just about expectations in the early days versus what's actually playing out. Well, I do think that people thought that Bitcoin would be used more for smart contracts, it'd be more programmable and so on than it is. I think people thought Bitcoin was going to do everything. 
And I don't think that's the case. I think Bitcoin is digital gold and it's essential and it's a crucial component of the future and the center of the future crypto economy, the present crypto economy. But I don't think Bitcoin does everything. Um, I think it does many things, but not everything. Even gold, for example, is a crucial financial instrument. It was the core of the olden economy. And people don't understand what if, if gold is really, if digital gold is truly the core of the global economy, like it was in the past, that doesn't mean Bitcoin matches gold. That means it's like 10 or 100x what gold is because it's actually the reserve currency of the world. I don't think people have fully taken on board what that means. So just solving that one problem is amazing. For to try to solve everything else as well, I don't necessarily think that that will happen or at least not in a direct way, but we'll see. All right, Adam, I want to give you a, a chance at that same question, you know, obviously coming in kind of early days and proposing confidential transactions, privacy was important to you, you know, in terms of both, the, uh, where did you think the tech was going to be as well as where did you think like Bitcoin as a like movement amongst humanity, uh, just kind of gauge or, or talk about, um, you know, if, if 2013 Adam were to look at Bitcoin today, Kind of what would his, would his reactions be? Yeah, well, I mean, it does seem that the adoption has been faster and sort of gained acceptance with a wider array of players than we would have expected. You know, so Blockstream started in 2014. Just give some data points and examples because we experienced them. We were worried at that point, you know, would the US or Canada ban Bitcoin? So we were trying to keep a bit of a foot in both countries originally, but we resolved to just incorporate in Canada finally. Um, given what Canada did with, uh, you know, emergency powers and freezing accounts of protesters, that, like that, nobody expected that, for example, right? But in any case, you know, at that point, banks were not interested to talk about Bitcoin uh, or even about blockchain, right? And, you know, scroll forward a couple of years, they still didn't want to talk about Bitcoin as an asset class, but every major bank had a blockchain R&D lab. And so that was like a very rapid adoption. And I, I suspect that that being the case, you know, I mean, of course, users adopt technology because they're excited about it. They gain utility from it. They can talk with their friends about it. It's very cool technology. So there's a bit of a technology enthusiast vector People get involved in Bitcoin for all kinds of different reasons and learn more of the philosophy and get interested in cypherpunk ideas or, you know, even, even the concept of uh, investing and saving and having a long time preference, it really seems to change people's mindset. So that's cool. But on the other side of the spectrum, you've got the establishment and they don't often like change. You know, Balaji mentioned earlier in the discussion about, you know, early internet the establishment really didn't like the loss of control and influence over media and people's ability to disseminate independent information, things like that. So you could expect with something like hard bearer electronic cash on the internet with no permissions, that they might have opinions about it. And so people were, you know, significantly worried in you know, 2014 or earlier, even developers that it could be a risky proposition, right? That you, you could get into like legal or political trouble. So in any case, I think the, you know, while the users didn't particularly care about it, it may have added some air cover and establishment, gradual legit legitimacy and turning of thinking to be favorable to this asset class. The fact that 
lots and lots of banks were indisputably investing a lot of money into understanding blockchains that, that the core fundamental mechanism at the heart of Bitcoin was potentially interesting for you know, commerce in general, shares, banking, and so forth, right? So I think that that would cause people to think, oh, well, that's, that's a new innovation. It's, it's like the internet and you know, everybody wants to know about it and get educated about it. So, so that was one kind of phase. And of course, now we've gone through a new phase, which is you know, financial institutions are now interested to talk about Bitcoin. Uh, many Wall Street firms, you know, presumably based primarily on, a, on investor demand, are offering Bitcoin-related products, be that futures or derivatives or ETFs or funds that are, you know, kind of ETF proxies in the absence of ETFs. So, you know, the number of announcements about that kind of thing has really been pretty steady, you know, for the last year even with new financial institutions announcing things, governments uh, talking about increased regulatory clarity or favorable tax. I mean, the new, a new wave as well, which we might want to get into is um, sort of uh, favorable tax treatment in, in cities to try and establishment, establish themselves as technology hubs and attract you know, this big wave of startups building uh, the technology and, and high-level technology and applications around Bitcoin um, to their region. You know, that could be cities in the U.S. competing on that basis and even internationally. I mean, recently, Bitfinex announced something with the uh, Swiss city of Lugano, which is in the south, south of Switzerland, near Italy, um, to just basically be a technology hub. Um, you know, the, the El Salvador phenomena that they introduced Bitcoin as a second legal tender, very interesting. Um, so those kinds of um, adoption metrics are very, very interesting. And to my point of view, you know, people would talk about something happening maybe in 10 years and then like within a couple of years, it'd be a reality. And people would sort of step back and go, wow, like never saw that coming. And you know, from, the, from the internet era, there's the, there's the technologists saying about everything's going fast. It's internet time. So... You know, just just that it's, a, it's I think it's a phenomenon of open networks. Open networks can innovate faster because they're permissionless. And that's certainly the case for the internet versus, you know, often state-owned telephony companies. If you want to build a new telephony app or something, you know, you'd have to get permission from all kinds of people. And maybe they just say no because it competes with something they're already doing or they didn't like it. Um, so, and you see that with Bitcoin, and, and crypto, that the pace of innovation is just uh, much faster, even than internet time. So, you know, if you'd ask somebody before El Salvador, would a government, you know, do something with Bitcoin? It would say, well, maybe, you know, in like 10 years time, but here it is, right? And so, you know, another, another what if is, um, you know, the Bitcoin as an asset class becoming more than a gold competitor and actually taking a step towards uh, a return to um, sort of commodity, hard money, you know, commodity backed uh, money. I mean, with gold and its run of 6,000 years, the sort of fractional reserve banking is a relatively recent on the arc of history phenomena, a fairly short lived, you know, like 100 years or something like that, right? So, I mean, because prior to various points in different countries, even in the last century, their local currency was 
pegged to some extent to gold or, or to the US dollar, which was in turn pegged to the gold in a Bretton Woods period. So this all a fairly recent thing and leads to credit expansion and cheap money and so on. But so the concept of Bitcoin being a return to uh, asset backed money, which is something that Safety and Amos writes about in his Bitcoin standard book, by which he means literally that, you know, and he, he wrote this a while ago, right? So he was much more optimistic about the future adoption level for myself. You know, if you asked me last year, I would have said, that's yeah, okay, let's see if Bitcoin can compete with gold first. We can worry about this, uh, you know, competing with fiat currency or store of value or international settlements globally later. But I think, you know, the events of even this year kind of shifted the, the potential for that um, where you see, you know, even superpowers talking about changing the basis currency for oil trade, um, you know, sanctioning of uh, foreign currency reserves or freezing of foreign currency reserves. That really places a question mark over, for example, the US, sorry, the China ownership of US dollar based assets, like it'd be that companies, real estate, and US dollar reserves, which are, I mean, and you, you can't really own US dollars outside the US, so that's all exposed. So I think this all bodes towards um, use of commodities. That could be physical commodities or Bitcoin as a kind of virtual digital gold having a bigger part in the future. So maybe, you know, Safedean's book is much closer than we anticipate and there'll be more countries. So, so things will shake up and, you know, maybe we'll even see a uh, change in the global reserve currency, which is currently the US previously, US dollar previously was the British pound and it, you know, it shifted across every few hundred years. So maybe that's actually on the cards in our lifetimes even, which, you know, if you'd asked anybody that five years ago, they would have been quite confident that the US dollar reserve was, you know, good for a hundred years, right? Actually, Dalio uh, just recently put out a book, which is good on many levels. I do disagree with it on some levels, but I think on balance, it's quite, especially given where he just sits socially, it's actually quite courageous and talks about um, on, on that concept. You're right, Adam. I think you and I and a few other folks like us were like, yeah, you know, there's actually a lot of weakness here and it's not heading in a good direction, but certainly was not conventional wisdom and it has increasingly become so. At least it is now within the Overton window to think about. Um, and, you know, it's funny, actually, after the printing of 2008, I remember thinking, you know, I because I had heard about Bitcoin and so on. And I was like, um, I think, I don't remember when I first heard about it, but I think it was, it wasn't, wasn't in, in, in like the first months or anything. But um, I do remember that I was like, oh, well, are we too late? Did all the printing already occur? You know, has, and, and no, we're not too late. We're actually just on time. And uh, that wasn't obvious in like 2009 to 2010 because it seemed like all of this money had been printed. The banks had, you know, been turned into these effectively like centralizing powers. Um, it was very hard to get like a bank charter, for example. A lot of innovation had been choked out. And then what happened was fintech and crypto kind of, you know, went high and low respectively. And fintech kind of layered over the current system like Stripe and Square and so on. And then you know, Bitcoin is a layer below, which is a better backend, a different backend. And those kind of are now coming together where, um, you know, cryptocurrency support is becoming more standard for lots and lots of banks and um, exchanges and fintech companies. I really, I think it's exchanges first, fintech companies, and, and then some banks there like DBS Bank, for example, in Singapore. So uh, that's how I kind of think about that.
No, I think that's a really, really useful color. And I, I, I really resonated with a lot of that, uh, what you just broke down there. Um, I kind of want to stick on uh, a theme that Adam brought up, which is, you know, Bitcoin as this kind of like virtual commodity. And that is intrinsically tied to the proof of work mechanism. Uh, we've seen this kind of thinking around the proof of work mechanism and its potential utility for energy producers kind of reveal itself over the last uh, few years. Maybe some very, very insightful folks like Balaji saw this, uh, you know, early on, but uh, the conventional wisdom of, you know, what proof of work is useful for and how it can play into the greater grid, uh, like that thinking is is relatively new. I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, what you both think of uh, proof of work and how it plays into both geopolitically as well as uh, as well as uh, for the actual energy grid itself, which is a huge topic in today's uh, world as well. So I want to stay with Balaji and then uh, we'll pass it to Adam. Same question. Sure. So a few things on proof of work. So first is, I do think proof of work is essential. Um, you know, as I've said, you know, I'm not a maximalist, and I do believe in many different kinds of consensus methods, and I want all this to be out there. But I'm totally unyielding on we need to have proof of work and the energy consumption should be thought of as energy production. Just to talk about this for a second, the thing about Bitcoin's proof of work chain is it gives absolute truth. And that accumulated work means that history is hard to falsify. Um, you need not just a lot of computation for a few minutes or hours or days, but probably for years. And they'll be very noticeable while you're doing it. And so it makes it extremely expensive to rewrite history in the way that many totalitarian regimes have done, as you know, Stalin has done and has, you know, like the Cambodians of the year zero. And many totalitarian regimes tried to destroy the statues, you know, declare that the past is evil, that everything in the past, you know, is is or like one part of the past is terrible. We can't talk about it, remember it, um, and uh, that now it's a glorious future. And uh, you know, like uh, or as Orwell said, you know, he who controls um, the past controls the present, and he who controls the present controls the future. If you tell a particular story of history where some people are the good guys and some people are the bad guys, that tells people who the good guys and bad guys are today. And of course, the government justifies itself as being part of the good guys, and that's why actually curricula and so on is so important. And so, the concept of completely undeletable history of at least the financial transactions of the world, and then maybe more generally anything you can. Merkle treeify and put on chain, which is a very large set of things, um, that's ridiculously important. That's a backbone. Anything that is important enough, you could hash and put on chain and then maybe have some proof of its existence. And then you could have, you know, the data availability problem is a separate problem to solve. Maybe it's IPFS, maybe it's some other redundant file store, but there's some way of having then that data off chain. And if you can do that, you have this undeletable history that stops many different kinds of totalitarianism. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that everything is good about that, that people could put really bad things on, on chain or what have you, but on net, I think the good of having an undeletable history outweighs the bad. And um, what, that's what proof of work gives you, something you just can't mess with. Um, and people who uh, you know, talk about, for example, energy consumption, there's two things I think they don't get on this. First is energy, you know, it's, it's not finite. Like if we, um, there's this uh, good book called Where's My Flying Car? And it talks about the so-called Henry Adams curve and energy production was ramping. And then it flatlined in like the 1970s or thereabouts. And so all the focus has been on energy efficiency. Now, of course, energy efficiency is good. It's good to 
not quote, unnecessarily waste energy. But that presumes that energy production is flatlining. And with nuclear power, it doesn't have to be. And so one of the best things that Bitcoin mining is doing is giving a strong incentive to put us back on the Henry Adams curve to push against the concept that, oh, it's only about consumption and energy efficiency and get back onto energy production, which you can do with nuclear power. And so it's stimulating a renaissance in that. Another thing that Bitcoin mining is doing, so first it stands for truth. Second, it stands for incentivizing energy production. And that's, by the way, how we become like a spacefaring species. That's what gets us back on the Kardashev you know, curve, if, if you're familiar with that, like the Kardashev scale rather. Um, I call it keeping up with the Kardashevs, you know, so how much energy you, uh, you need to um, manipulate to be considered a Kardashev, you know, scale one, two, three kind of civilization. And so get, so number two, it gets, so it's absolute truth. It is energy production, incentivized energy production. Um, and the third thing, which is really interesting is it's a, it's kind of a, a variable load that you can put anywhere in the grid to act something like a battery, not in the literal sense of energy storage. And a lot of people are dumb enough on Twitter. They're like, oh, you mean literally a battery? No, I'm not saying that, like a money battery. In the same way we say a document and that encompasses both a paper document and an electronic document. And there's different ways of representing something that's conceptually similar. This has some aspects of a battery in that it can store something for use later, except it stores in the form of BTC rather than in the form of, uh, of joules, right? And that is actually useful because um, it's actually very, uh, our batteries are not as good as our production. In general, on the, on the, on the power grid, you wanna balance um, the production of power and the instantaneous consumption of it. Uh, and storing that in a battery is actually uh, not, not that efficient. And in some cases, the calculations work out that's better to store it in BTC and then use that BTC later. And the thing is that what people don't understand is you know, they're like, well, you're still spending energy. I'm like, you know, you know, it has a lot of energy. A volcano has a ton of energy, but it's not human useful energy. Um, and it's, it's something where the concept of having it be human useful, where BTC can be traded with somebody and then you can spin up new energy somewhere else on the grid. That's a concept where, um, you know, people don't usually think of like the human observer in terms of when energy is useful or not, but there is that aspect to it. And so, because uh, just energy production alone, there's lots of things, you know, tidal waves, all those things are producing energy, but just not capturing it. So, so that's kind of the third thing is this is a tool to sort of um, load balance uh, and to actually make renewables more profitable because renewables are very volatile in production. And, uh, you know, you, you have wind and then you don't have wind, you have wind, you don't have wind. And, you know, you turn on a light switch, you don't turn on a light switch. You've got now volatility on both ends, both demand and supply. And uh, Bitcoin mining can at least give a consistent demand where as people are no longer using lights or electricity in their homes, Bitcoin mining can spool up and take that demand from the renewables, right? So that's another application of it. And this is already being used in Texas. It's being used um, for shale oil and other places. And Adam's probably aware of this. So it's a big deal. Topic close to my heart, of course. But um, I think um, a number of things that could be said about it. And, and if, you know, it's, it's a common factor, of course, that any industry that's relatively complicated with second order effects is very badly reported in the mainstream media, you know, or, or handled by, you know, politicians and uh, bureaucracies in trying to set social policy and things. So they will often do things which actually make things worse or do the opposite of what they were hoping to do. You know, I'm sure they're sincere in their hope, but, you know, it, it's a complicated area. So, um, I mean, I think one thing I would pick up on is that um, 
there, there's some kind of concept of kind of uh, energy rationing at the moment where people are encouraged to use less energy, but in throughout human history, um, the ability to you know, generate energy is uh, the central driver of uh, you know, human progress in economics, right? Our, our prosperity is all, so if you, if you take any particular country that their wealth is generally correlated with their energy production capability, any, any manufacturing uses energy. If we have more energy, we can build more interesting things. We can be more wealthy. We can be more prosperous as a species, as a society globally. So I think the kind of energy austerity is the wrong way to look at it. And we need to be thinking about growth and building energy capacity and building green energy capacity, not about you know shutting down energy capacity with no economic plan to create more energy capacity. Right. Uh, that just, that just, you know, that drives social unrest, that drives poverty, it drives a collapse of economies. And of course, you know, as people have finally woken up and realizing that shutting off nuclear power plants is, is not good for your country because then you don't have energy sovereignty. You, you have the reverse, which is, you know, over 50% of your domestic energy in the case of Germany is imported from Russia. And so if there are sanctions flowing around, now you're exposed. So I think people have come to realize as a result of that, belatedly, that you know, having your own energy infrastructure is actually important. And the energy is an important part of the economy, of course. Uh, you know, as soon as any kind of energy source uh, increases in price, that automatically flows through to everything, you know, transport, equipment, production, and so forth. So there's the kind of prosperity aspect. Um, I think is in particular for Bitcoin, it's probably fundamental that uh, a commodity bearer money has to have a production cost, an unavoidable, non-shortcutable production cost. Because if it doesn't, ultimately what you have is political money, right? Because if there's no production cost, then it's, you know, it's, it's like uh, political money, fiat money. The, there are people making policy decisions about how much to create. They'll run into some dire economic conditions and they'll bypass or override their monetary policy, agreed monetary policy rules. And so I think it's kind of unavoidable. And you can see that in uh, previous era kind of things. So, I mean, I think loosely we, we, you know, we went through a gold era and then a black gold, i.e. oil era, where different countries became more geopolitically significant because they had massive oil reserves. And before that, they might have been relatively impoverished, but they suddenly became wealthy and geopolitically important. And now we have this new phenomenon with digital gold that actually it's, it's an energy money in a sense. And so, you know, in the midterm, you might even see governments um, doing sovereign mining, uh, building up Bitcoin sovereign reserves I'm sure there are sprinklings of it just, just because of sovereign wealth funds owning asset classes and things like that, but as an intentional drive, and that could you know, create wealth for countries which are early adopters or early miners of Bitcoin. So I think that's an interesting analogy. Um, and I think the other thing is that particularly for green power, so Blockstream does uh, industrial scale mining and provides hosting for other uh, funds and individuals that 
want to do some mining by miners and have them hosted by us. Uh, we also make a financial instrument, the Blockstream Mining Note, which is a kind of securitized version of that. It's a proper financial instrument, but also tokenized. So those things are um, economically capture Bitcoin mining, but in particular, you know, for there are, there are sort of well-meaning government policies to encourage um, zero emissions power generation. And my observation is that, you know, for you, is that nothing gets built in the world without a business model, without financing, right? So, so policies and well-meaning do not necessarily achieve anything. What actually matters is that somebody can make a business case and secure investment and build infrastructure. And so the observation we came to through talking with, you know, there's no, there's no, no better way to understand something fundamentally than to try to do it at scale and, you know, feel the economic pain of, well, what, what are the factors that affect this? I think you, you, you understand it better then. And talking with power companies, particularly that, um, Bitcoin could actually be the economic driver that uh, enables large-scale power infrastructure construction, because which is green. So I think generally green power or zero emissions power tends to be cheaper because there is no raw material that needs to be extracted, refined, and transported. Uh, I would classify nuclear in that because the fuel consumption is a negligible part, and. Bitcoin is an ideal um, base load. It's, it's a steady load that can be turned off relatively quickly and it can be located anywhere on the planet. So you, 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 know, you can use it in stranded energy. You know, um, energy is contrary to many people's uh, expectation, not easily transportable over great differences, distances because of power drops and efficiency of battery technology as Balaji mentioned. So, I think that that means that, you know, the future could hold um, a shift towards countries that are early adopters, that build power infrastructure, that build up Bitcoin reserves as a, a sovereign reserve. And so I'd, I'd view that as the, you know, an opportunity of, you know, that appears once in hundreds of years of a new technology evolution that could really change, change the world for the better and get us a, a step closer to the Kardashev future. We are so far away from, you know, even, even the, uh, the, the level one target, which is the, uh, you know, to use the power that's arriving on the planet. Um, and so we're really, we're really missing out. And if we want to, I mean, Balaji said it, but I'll expand on it, which is, you know, if we, if we want to actually become a multi-planetary species that requires an enormous amount of energy and construction for you know, putting technology into space in bulk. And you don't do that without ridiculous amounts of power. And so we really need to up the game. We don't need you know, energy um, rationing. We need an aggressive industrial sized uh, construction of new power infrastructure to you know, improve everybody's wealth and prosperity. And drive technology growth, which also requires investment. So that's, that's my collection of thoughts on this topic. I think it's going to be, um, I think that's absolutely right. And I think though, what we're going to find, we might find, unfortunately, the next few years, there might be a push for rationing. 
And so it might get much worse before it gets better. So we have to really push in the other direction, push for nuclear and so on, as opposed to scarcity. Um, and that's going to be a huge, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a big, big tussle. If energy gets really scarce, there'll be a lot of pressure that's put on things. I think the thing that is, that works in our favor is that now there's enough governments that are pro Bitcoin that sort of a government, which is kind of where Bitcoin is legal is, um, perhaps going to be the most important division of the world in, by 2030. Um, and, you know, because I think the orange coin is the new blue jeans, the global symbol of, you know, freedom and prosperity. And that's actually a really important thing because, uh, you know, what is that symbol? Because in the, you know, the 80s, if you remember the Soviets, they were attracted to, you know, the, the blue jeans and the Coca-Cola and the better consumer experience in the US, but that was also something that was provided by the freedom. So it's a freedom and the prosperity is the values that underpin the valuations basically. And um, the ideals that, you know, underpin capitalism and free markets and fair trade and, and, and so on and so forth. Like, uh, and so the uh, well, free trade, you know, you can also say fair trade, but, um, and uh, now today, if the original champion of, um, you know, free markets and free speech is at best lukewarm. And currently, you know, there's all, every day you'll see something in, you know, about how we need to censor the internet for our own good in not just Russia, not just China, but in the US. And, you know, there's articles in, you know, Salzberger's paper, the, you know, the New York Times, by the way, is owned by a family. It's not like some disembodied voice, Ox Salzberger family owns it. So in Salzberger's paper, uh, there's articles like free speech is killing us or, you know, free speech is bad. And so you see this kind of concerted attack on free speech and free markets in the former countries that used to champion it. And so then you need kind of a different way of talking about what that global champion is. And I think that's going to be BTC. If there's a country like El Salvador or maybe South Korea now, or places within the US like Miami and Wyoming and Colorado and Texas and so on, where it is legal and protected to hold Bitcoin, um, you know, one of the things I'd like to see over the months and years to come are anti-seizure laws. So to anticipate that it's quite possible that a desperate state tries something like Executive Order 6102, or just tries to seize the money um, to push a button to win. And, uh, and that becomes, first of all, prima facie illegal, just like a gun seizure would be prima facie illegal. And you call it out before it happens, and you enumerate various ways that it might be done where it's not called a seizure. Right, because usually it's always like the Heroes Act or the the Patriot Act or, or something like that, and it's always like wrapped in some gift wrapping, you know, for children or, or for you know to stop terrorism or something. And um, so, getting ahead of those seizure bills, I think within the U.S. it's possible because uh, you know you already have states going their own way on immigration policy with sanctuary cities or on gun laws or on drug laws you know, with medical marijuana or abortion or, you know, gay marriage, all these other things there's been over the last couple of decades an increasing peeling away of states going in this and that direction and simply not enforcing federal law or overriding it or what have you. And I think that's gonna be what's happen, gonna happen inside the US. And then similarly outside the US, lots of poor countries uh, potentially will just start stockpiling BTC because that is actually the asset they can trust that's not gonna just get zipped out of their account um, by the US or by China in the event of some political instability. And you know that's why Germany actually after the financial crisis, they're an ally of the US, but they repatriated their gold to the Bundesbank if you're, if you're aware of that, right? They actually literally went and moved tons and tons of physical gold 
And you know, you can compare that to moving the same amount with a Bitcoin transaction is way more expensive. Um, and uh, and and they did it because you know that's the whole point of a gold reserve. It's like it's something where when the chips are down, you don't want to have a counterparty risk. So so I do think that it's going to happen, but things are going to be super messy, um, and we just need to advocate for it. Balaji, I'm really glad that you started hitting on this kind of political football as well as game theory when it comes to uh, countries playing and and adopting with or making decisions about uh, Bitcoin. Adam, I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on that topic as well. Yeah, I mean, I think um, basically, you know, posturing aside that ultimately the market wins. And so, you know, you, you, you see it in Germany, for example, right? They turned off their nuclear power plants. Now they're thinking about reopening them. Why is that? Well, economic reality is pointing out that that was a bad idea. And, you know, globally with Bitcoin, as it continues to get adoption, and as countries that take more forward-looking, innovation-friendly policies, they will just start to win economically. So, you know, there's this unfortunate phrase that some Bitcoiners use, the uh, have fun staying poor. <laughs> of course, that's, uh, you know, not a kind thing to say because being, you know, being short of resources is, is, a, is a problem, right? But, you know, in, in other words, if countries want to, you know, take retrograde steps and not adopt technology advantages, they ultimately will lose on a global financial playing field. And we've seen Bitcoin, because it's decentralized and free market based, I mean, truly free market based on like most of today's markets, it's very resilient and adaptive. So, you know, China banned Bitcoin mining. I mean, they banned Bitcoin, banned Bitcoin lots and lots of times and it never, nothing ever really happened. But finally, they actually did put in place a strong enough ban that some, some mining went underground, great market, and like a, a big chunk of it left the country. And, you know, Bitcoin wasn't affected. Um, that it, was it was, it was effect, right? I mean, like mining did take a big hit, but it recovered pretty quickly. And that was like, well, so right. I, 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 yeah. I, you're right that basically like transactions slowed down a little bit, but that was China taking a huge swing of the bat. And basically, you know, no other state is probably going to be quite as organized as that, at least at the technical yeah. level. Yeah. Well, I mean, I th right. So it's. Uh, it I mean, I, I broadly agree with you. I just wanted to add that it, it was a yeah. big drop in mining. But go ahead. Right, but I mean, the the uh, you know, as a uh, a large scale miner, like for me personally and for Blockstream, that was net profitable, right? So basically, <laughs> right, all they right. did is they profits others, sent their profits to other people. So that was yep. my kind of macro point: is that you know, if if you want to do retrograde steps you will have funds to stay in poor doing it and you'll just give money to other people. And, you know, because this capital reallocation, wealth reallocation implied in doing that, it's kind of self-correcting. People don't, you know, fundamentally don't want to be poor and they will eventually be forced, you know, to, to adopt the Bitcoin standard earlier or later. And there's another fun phrase, which is everybody buys Bitcoin at the price they deserve it, which is just saying that, you know, if you, if you have a particularly stubborn view that, oh, this is, you know, this is not going to go anywhere or, you know, only government should print money or something, something like that. You know, the market is happy to teach you a lesson ultimately. So I think it's just a free market view that, you know, people view governments as 
you know, um, determining the destiny of the world. But they, I mean, firstly, philosophically, I disagree with that. They're, pub, you know, governments are made up of public servants, so they work for us. And if they take policies that are not in our interests, then we should vote against it or we should leave, which is uh, something Belgium's talked about at length, like exit, like leave the country, find somewhere with, you know, economic policies and other policies that match your interests. Um, but my, my point is that governments themselves are fundamentally not immune to economic shifts. So, you know, if, if there were a country, and I, I don't suppose this happened particularly, but when oil was becoming, you know, invention of the internal combustion engine, discovery of which arose from the discovery of oil as an energy source, uh, gasoline, diesel, and so forth. If there was a country that was sitting on a massive oil reserve that took a dislike, no, we don't, as a policy, we don't like oil. We disagree, we're gonna burn wood or something, steam engines. Um, for some reason, they, they would have eventually started mining it because just the economic realities would have caught up with them. So of course, we're, we're in the early stages of Bitcoin and energy driven money reserves, but that same economic pressure is there. So they can, they can avoid it for a while, they can print money, but as they see other countries getting prosperous by you know, fostering that or making use of low cost energy reserves, um, they'll change. So, so I, just, I just think there's a kind of, you know, internet physics or gravity that's unavoidable and uh, the market wins. And so, you know, governments have the illusion that they're setting the destiny of the planet, but they don't, you know, technology and the free market does. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what Adam just said. I would add two like addenda, not even really disagreeing. On on exit, the way I kind of think about that is um, it is about, for example, being able to leave the country and emigrate and so on. But at the most meta sense, it's about choice and alternatives. It's about, you know, an alternative to every monopoly. It's about the ability to technologically innovate. It's about a choice other than a binary that's put in front of you or the choice to make no choice. And you know, there's this famous book, you know, Exit Voice and Loyalty that kind of talks about the balance between those three forces, you know, um, when when there's an issue to solve. So I, the reason I just want to say that is sometimes exit can be caricatured as, oh, it's like disloyal people who are just like leaving, et cetera. No, well, actually, it's a way of putting a multiplier. You might vote and express your democratic voice, but if that doesn't, if that's not sufficient or you're ignored, well, you have your backup plan, your parachute, which is exit. And, you know, that can be within a company, like, you know, you, you give some feedback to the to the CEO or, or through a customer service ticket and doesn't work, okay, take your business elsewhere, right? Open source project, you file an issue, okay, it doesn't work. Um, maybe you try to solve it yourself, that doesn't work. Okay, fine, go to another project, right? So it's just a meta thing where it's a backup plan. Um, and I just wanted to mention that because sometimes it, it, not, not at all, but, um, it, Adam did not caricature, but other people sometimes do. Um, and the other thing on have fun staying poor, uh, so that's Udi's coinage. And, you know, the way I think about that is personally, you know, like I, like my sort of philosophy is win and help win. I actually think you want positive sum alignment. That's actually why we want to try to convince people to get into BTC. I do think that is funny in the limited specific circumstance where it's, you know, deployed against, you know, nasty or disrespectful no coiners who are like, ah, you stupid crypto bro, blah, blah, you know. All right, then fine, you know like they pull a knife, you pull a gun basically, right? You know, or, you know, just proportional retaliation basically. Um, so in that circumstance, it is funny. Um, but as a general thing, I think win and help win is a much better message because 
um, it can ricochet outside of the community and those folks who are trying to bait, you know, Bitcoin people would be like, see, they're bad or whatever. And you kind of don't want to give them the ammo for that. It, it's situational, of course. Right. So um, that's my thought on, you know, HFSP. Yeah. I mean, actually it's, uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, I had some friends who I, try to enter with an electronic cash background, right? So I thought that they should get interested with Bitcoin, uh, maybe contribute technologically or invest and so forth. Uh, they, they remained resolutely skeptical for many years. Um, so, and, uh, you know, I think one of the things that they raised as putting them off was the um, over-enthusiasm of the proposers. So they found it suspicious, like boosterism, right? Hmm. You know, that, that peop if people are desperately trying to sell you something, maybe they're doing it for the ulterior reason, the ulterior right. motive that they, they own some or something. But with Bitcoin, it's actually, I think it's often misunderstood and people are genuinely excited because they're feeling generous. They want to help people. They don't want anybody to, you know, get left behind. Um, and so to the extent that, different people enjoy Bitcoin for different reasons. The reason that they want other people to be aware of it is, you, and, and, and that you want Bitcoin to scale like technologically is that you want anybody that's interested to have the opportunity to, to use it and gain from the benefits of it. So, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the have fun staying poor is definitely uh, not funny actually. I mean, it's like, it's pure, you know, uh, expressed in a funny way, but it's it's certainly not a kind thing. And I'm much more right. interested in in uh, you know educating people. Yeah. yeah, and I, I mean I think that um, you know paradoxically I've seen this phenomena, and I had some discussions with some other people who were talking about Bitcoin very early on, that you can't always teach people things, you know, sometimes they won't believe it until they experience it kind of thing, yep. right? So, like Canadian truckers or something like that. Yeah, so, so and that, that has translated into, into Bitcoin sometimes. So I think, um, you know, so there is an aspect of, you know, maybe don't like push people too hard. Like if they ask questions, tell them about it. But, you know, if you, if you push them too hard, you might accidentally uh, discourage them because they feel like people are, the, the enthusiasts are too enthusiastic, but, you know, of course, at this point in time, a lot of people are sort of changing their viewpoints to saying, you know, oh, now I see, see that you guys were right. Uh, and it's, you know, it's complicated think, because yeah. it's also something like retargeting with ads. Like the fact that they had argued against it before actually meant that at least they knew this was a live debate. And it kind of raised awareness for them, even if they pushed back against it. Like Isabella Kaminska is a good example of this, who for many years at the Financial Times, she was like pretty negative on this, but then she started seeing how censorious, you know, media was getting and, um, you know, and, and I'm not singling her out. A lot of people came to different realizations over the last 10 years. Certainly I'm much less, uh, I'm not that I wasn't before, but I'm even more skeptical of concentrated corporate power in 2022 than I was in 2012 because the libertarian model, you know, and I wouldn't call myself libertarian, but like libertarian-ish model of, um, you know, a bunch of different companies that aren't coordinated. Well, you know, if five of them don't sell to you, the, the, the other five will, that model is not working. You're having something where there's like coordinated 
monopolies where like a small group just all does the same thing at the same time under social pressure. And, uh, and so that means, okay, well, econ 101 of perfect competition is absolutely not working. Instead, we have effectively social collusion rather than economic collusion. We don't have the words for that because it is being talked about as a good thing, right? And so, you know, similarly, there are folks, so just like there are folks in tech who learned over time, actually, these companies have been corrupted. And it's a complicated thing because I actually do think they were initially for free speech and they were neutral platforms. And the people who were attacking them as being not neutral made them biased in a direction. It's sort of like uh, accusing them of exercising editorial judgment made them exercise editorial judgment to prove that they weren't. It, it, it's, it's a complicated kind of thing, but maybe you understand my point. It was like Google and Twitter and so on were actually quite neutral before 2012 or thereabouts. And then afterwards, steadily, there was more energy to put a thumb on the scales. And similarly, is a Kaminska or people like that in media, we're seeing, wow, okay, the previously free media, free press I thought existed, we're all being told to you know, be in lockstep. And so Adam, I think you're right that everybody has to kind of come to it in their own way, be mugged by reality in their own way. I just hope they, you know, I hope, I hope they're still around after the muggings, uh, you know, to, to be able to, you know, flip and, and figure it out. Um, Cause those muggings are getting faster and worse. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a great line in, I guess the big shorts, which is like a kind of financial Mm -hmm. uh, story about a 2008 crash uh, about uh, the fellow who um, foresaw the well, I mean, it's dramatized, right? So, but anyway, so saw saw the housing crisis coming and shorted it and made a lot of money. And so, you know, the character that's played by played by Brad Pitt tells them like, just don't effing dance because you know they were like very happy that they they just realized you know they just realized an enormous profit but that profit was from buying an insurance policy on yes. uh, economic disaster for everybody so yep. you know that you i think bitcoin is a talks about that too that you know if if bitcoin is um you know kind of short against fiat or insurance for geopolitical and economic problems that's good but to the extent bitcoin is economically profiting from that that's actually pretty sad because it means the world is becoming a you know a less prosperous and less geopolitically stable place and nobody wants that i like to call it peaks and valleys you know if, if bitcoin is really evolution or the next stage there there may have to be some sort of a, a valley uh from transitioning i do want to zoom out, you know, we're kind of zoomed out talking about adoption more, uh, more granularly talking about nation states game theory. And for my last question, I want to zoom in and talk about individuals and this kind of trend that we've been dancing around, which is almost like individuals within uh, a country becoming the enemy of the country or of the institution. We're starting to see, uh, you know, dissidents uh, in Australia, Canada, things like that you know, be the victims of some sophisticated uh, non-lethal weaponry. Um, you know, there's some photos of, you know, what was used in New Zealand and Australia against protesters to uh, mandates. Uh, and it's really incredible just to hear the term domestic terrorist and freezing of domestic bank accounts and putting whole swaths of people on the no-fly list. You know, these kind of very aggressive uh, removals of rights and attacks on, on individuals are ramping up. 
And I want to look at Bitcoin and dissident tech more generally as a tool for the individual and how that plays out. I want to go back to you, Blodgy. Again, me and you both really enjoy the book, The Sovereign Individual. Uh, so I know that this is something that you've been thinking about a lot. Well, um, kind of their only hope uh, in some ways. Um, and the reason is that technology has powered up decentralization, but it's also in some context powered up centralization. Basically, by default, all these computer systems have root. And it's easier to build a centralized system, a hub and spoke system with lots of people folding into it. And so there's someone who has root over PayPal and they've got root over Facebook and root over this and root over that. And if you've got root, you can enter and boom, drop somebody through a trap door. And there's many, many systems where you can hit enter and drop, you know, in the case of Russia, for example, 140 million people, 145 million people just drop through a trap door. In the case of the Canadian truckers, boom, done. No, no uh, court order, no due process basically targeting people on the base of their nationality, regardless of whether they're, you know, like outside the country or they're a dissident or not a dissident. It's just completely broad brush, punish now, figure it out later, if ever. And there's just no recourse of any kind. Um, and that's pretty scary. And uh, because that's, you know, it's the kind of thing where people be like, oh, you know, are you, you're, you're for X or Y group. That's not the point. Like, when you see the mushroom cloud over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yeah, you might believe, well, okay, you know, the US had a reason to fight Japan after Pearl Harbor, but you also know that nuke is going to be used somewhere else. And these financial nukes, these tools, every person in every country, every country is seeing it. And these are tools states are going to use against their people. Now, what we've got going for us, fortunately, is there are a bunch of, you know, pro-freedom people around the world. And it's going to get pretty nasty. The thing is that right now we actually haven't been like, we haven't gone through true hardship, right? In the event that there's actually a genuine surge in commodities prices and there's rationing and so on, that's like true hardship of a kind that most people haven't lived through. You know, even if you're in the Western world, you haven't lived through it. If you are in, even in Asia, you haven't lived through it in the last, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, you're just getting out of it after 30 years of immense growth. And uh, so, so I think that in that environment of high scarcity, existing polarization, existing inflation, we will see crackdowns. And I think this stuff is, is, is crucial to, to getting around that. And that's, of course, it's Bitcoin. It's also Tor. Um, it is, you know, zero knowledge. It is, um, it's, a, it's a variety of both, you know, technological and, and political tools and, and uh, other tools for decentralization. So, Awesome. Uh, great answer, Adam. I want to give you a, a chance to answer that as well, and then we'll wrap this one up. Yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, it seems that we have a a rise in kind of authoritarianism, which obviously, you know, from our perspective, extremely bad. I think most people would consider that bad. And the normalization of that, um, you know, historically, people have you know, our, our ancestors have basically died in wars to uh, establish the kind of societal norms that we enjoy today. And now even, you know, very prosperous developed countries are throwing that all away over ridiculous things, you know. And, and the fact that the population, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't, so it even seems to partly support it is very concerning that, you know, there's this kind of um, meme about uh, 
you know, hard times generating strong people and good times, you know, people, people get sort of lazy and weaker and less aware of the history and the reason for things. And so they're, they're basically creating an environment which is, which is conducive to a rise in authoritarianism and all of the societal ills and economic hardships that could arise from that. So I think, you know, on an individual basis, I'm, I'm a kind of bottoms up enthusiast. I think at least we have the tools, right? And, and the individual, you know, sovereign individual concept that if the individual opts out, you know, okay, that protects them, that's good for them. But collectively, if lots of people do that, they start to become an accountability economic force that's pushing back against this kind of problem. So, I mean, in, in a technology space, of course, yeah, you know, we, in, in short, we can, you know, use Tor, encrypt our drives, buy Bitcoin, stay anonymous. Um, you know, I think having, there's a book by Werner Vinge called True Names, which is sort of saying that privacy is extremely important strategically. So, you know, if you, if you are low profile, you're minding your own business, you're investing your money in un unseizable, fairer assets, uh, and you're keeping privacy while doing so, then you are in a better position. But certainly it's, it's uh, incumbent on all of us, I think, to you know, find ways to push back against this sort of authoritarian direction. Um, seems to be a bit coordinated too. You know, you know, there's similar talking points on global media. So I don't know if it's to do with the World Economic Forum talking points, but there's clearly coordination on a lot of these things and they're leading in a pretty dark direction, which is strange because I, I have to imagine that the politicians who are doing the coordinating think they're doing something for the greater good, but actually the trajectory from my perspective is extremely dark and doesn't end in a good place. And um, Bitcoin is, you know, is the hope really for, for a lot of, you know, outlet and hope for a lot of people at this point. Thank you both for uh, such a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. I want to give both of you one last opportunity to get a last word in and potentially, you know, a plug where people can learn more about what you're working on today. Uh, let's go to you, Adam, and then close with Blodgy. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, for, you know, where to find out more stuff about what, what I'm working on, you can go to blockstream.com. Um, and on social media, I am Adam3US on Twitter and so forth. Um, yeah, we, we are blessed to live in, in interesting times, I guess, is the uh, situation a bit, a bit too interesting. But at least we have our Bitcoin insurance policy to, uh, to use. Uh, it, it is that curse. Um, interesting times. I mean, you know, you want peace and prosperity are boring. And so that's what people sometimes want to make it exciting, unfortunately for us all. Um, yeah, so follow me on Twitter at Balajis, B-A-L-A-G-I-S. Anything I announce will be over there. So check that out. All right. Well, thank you both again. I appreciate the time and, uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, seeing you both in person, hopefully very, very soon, but until then stay safe and, uh, yeah, crazy times. Good luck out there. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you.